This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a limited series podcast on Stephen King adaptations. And we are talking about Apple TV's Lisey story. This is episode three, Under the Yum Yum Tree. And I am Joe Lipset. <laughs> and I am Terry. And I'm just going on a bull hunt this week. <laughs> oh, a lot of bull hunts. Yes. The, you know, that's the one thing that, that really kind of made me laugh that well over the course of the last three episodes, but this one in particular is the kind of Stephen King isms in oh, the dialogue, the, yes. the booyah and the, the bull hunts and the yum yum trees. And mm-hmm. I, what I, I do like is that it's actually addressed in this, in this episode where, uh, you know, Julian Moore's Lisi says like, it's what he said as a kid. And so it kind of addresses the sort of childlike nature of these terms because they're very childish, the, yes. the, the booyah moon and, and all this kind of stuff. But it kind of makes sense in terms of, of the actual story. And I am glad that they kind of put a little thing in there about like, yes, it kind of sounds ridiculous, but this yes. might be why. Which is kind of funny, right? Because again, I'm not the constant reader that you are, Terry, but I've read my fair share of King And I do know that he enjoys, I'm hesitant to even call them colloquialisms because I don't think they're regional. I think they're more King specific Mm -hmm. dialogue and nomenclature, but he does like to have, and I find especially his villains will have weird little sayings that will help to distinguish them either in King's mind or the eyes of his readers. But I also appreciated it. And I think it lends itself particularly well to the story because it does start it started to feel like we're in a fairy tale now, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. The the one the one thing that really jumped out at me this episode is is the way. I mean, we kind of talked about it. I think last week is is this kind of magical realism that yes, yes, this whole film or this whole story seems to envelop, and that Pablo Larraín, the the director and his cinematographer, have really captured. I, in particular, the titular yum yum tree that mm. features so into this, where it's like the story lead up is that Scott and Lisi are going. They go to this like inn that feels like it could be the start of a, a horror movie. Oh where my it's like gosh! In the I was snow. getting so Shining vibes. Eh? Oh yeah. Absolutely. No one's there. They're the only residents. Everyone's snowed Mm -hmm. out. They're stuck in this very idyllic looking kind of rustic in. Absolutely. But they they go out and there's this tree that's frozen. I think it's a weeping willow and everything is just, it looks like it's been instantly frozen and Mm -hmm. and it's so beautiful, but it feels very fairy tale-esque for sure. Yes. Yeah, particularly as, you know, we're hearing this story. And of course, because it's Lizzie's story, we're getting flashbacks within flashbacks. Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whoo, follow this bouncing red ball, Stephen King. But um, I did love that imagery of the water slowly starting to mm. seep up around them. And I appreciated that so much of Lizzie's reactions in this moment were once a panic and like sheer what the fuckery because that felt like a very genuine response to what was happening even as Clive Owen you know as someone who has 
grown up hypothetically in this magical land, Scott Landon is very calm and reassuring because he knows that the water is not a danger. But to regular lay people, this would be a terrifying development. Right. You're just sitting there under this tree. And and I, I did like the kind of comment even before this where, where Scott's like, it's winter out there, summer in here. So it, mm-hmm. it gives it this like otherworldly feel to it and they're yes. sitting down by this tree and then you're right the water starts to come in and her reaction is one of, of kind of terror which mm-hmm. feels completely apt if you're right. in this frozen landscape and the water is like slowly rising you normally that's like a uh, stop this i want to get off this ride type thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah this is an interesting episode because around this this all takes place in the front half of the episode to such an extent that i actually paused after all of this part was done because i thought okay well surely we must be coming up on some kind of cliffhanger because the episode is nearly over and lo and behold no we've got about 25 more minutes at this point and i just found i'm constantly surprised I don't know where this story is going. I don't know what to expect next. And yet it also feels like there's a certain amount of re- of repetition and just kind of calmness and a slow deliberateness to the pacing of the show as well. It's very languid. Like, it is very languid. Yeah. As languid as this, the seeping water. I'm trying to make a segue here. Is languid is that water kind of rising sort of like slowly? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It's been a long day, but I, yeah, the, this, the pacing of, of the, of these episodes is um, it's very measured. I think some mm-hmm. people might call it a slow TV series because it does, take its time it takes its time yes very measured throughout what it, what it's unveiling and it's slowly slowly sort of veering off into a little bit more horrifying directions there's but it's always little punctuations of that and not necessarily the the main focus of it and i'm i am curious to see what the general public kind of sees about this this series because it does feel a lot slower than i was expecting uh, if mm-hmm. i'm honest The more I think about it, the more this does feel of a kind with The Outsider, particularly in those Mm -hmm. early episodes where, you know, we didn't really know quite what was going on. We were getting our feet wet, for lack of a better term. And it was enthralling, but it was measured and it was deliberately paced to the point where I think some people found it interesting, but they, they weren't as hooked as they maybe would be. Like, this is definitely prestige television this is definitely you know i I was like oh it's like hbo which i'm sure apple tv would love to hear oh yeah but it it does feel of an ilk with those kinds of shows right like cable prestige as opposed Mm -hmm. to network drama where we've got to be more bombastic like i do think that jim dooley would be a much larger more menacing figure like he was in that first episode all the way through if this was on a more conventional. If this was the stand. Uh, oh gosh, Terry, why do we have to keep bringing that up? <laughs> I keep trying to forget it, and you won't let me. We <laughs> will not let you. We watched that, Joe. We watched every no. episode of that. No. <laughs> you know what? It was trauma. I had tried to. Re- I tried to retreat to my water's edge and just watch that veiled lady mutter to herself, "Why can't you just let me have?" We're not in the booyah moon, Joe. We're not in the booyah moon. I was trying to remember the adult term for it. What is it? (laughs) Banany or? Oh, yeah. Uh, Vanilla? Was it vanilla? Yes, I think it was vanilla. So much terminology. (laughs) I know, right? And again, as somebody who hasn't read the book, who is less familiar with 
everything that King does, there are times where I'm just thinking, this is not that easy to follow as a series. Like it's surprisingly simple. And yet the way that it is being constructed, like the flashbacks within flashbacks, the creation of a whole other world whose rules and machinations we don't understand, it can actually be almost overwhelming unless you're paying very close attention. I mean, we kind of brought this up a little bit last week, but I definitely think that's probably what drew J.J. Abrams to it. And you can kind of mm-hmm. see the cookie the cookie crumb nature of the plot. Like there's – you also mentioned just a little bit ago about kind of the repetitive nature of this. And there are a lot right. of repetitive motifs that, that keeps popping up. Like we keep seeing the use of water and, mm-hmm. and, and vessels being filled with that water. So I think we can kind of – I think show is trying to make an inference that that might be a way into this Booyah Moon. But it doesn't – spell it out it just sort of gives you these images and these kind of sometimes striking images mm-hmm. and then doesn't do anything with them it sort of just like puts it there and it's like yeah you'll you'll keep thinking about this because i'm going to keep hammering right. it home but i'm not going to really tell you why it's important yeah file it away don't forget about right. this i'll bring it up every once in a while to make sure that you remember and it'll pay off later i hope <laughs> we hope we hope <laughs> So we didn't talk about this before, so I am springing it on you. But I'm curious to know if, A, you agree that this is a big revelation, and B, what do you make of this? But we see Scott Landon in this Booyah Moon world talking to Amanda in this episode, which more or less to me confirms that he is not dead. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm really kind of, I'm curious to see where they're going to go with this, because I would say that the way that I'm sort of it kind of taking this Booyah Moon world is that it's it's sort of it's magical. It has wonderful things in it, but there's also something kind of horrific about it. And I kind right. of wonder if the people that are stationed around uh, this place have been stuck here. I mean, we kind of mm-hmm. get that inference with Amanda where, you know, we see her in the real world and she's catatonic and she's carving help me uh, Lisi in her arm and we see her here is sort of enthralled by the water, which also heals her at one point. Mm-hmm. So I, there seems to be some kind of pull here, almost like maybe a spider's web that once people kind of get entranced with it, they get stuck here. Cause we don't really know how Scott died. Correct. Still don't we, know. No, we still don't know that because it's in, inferred at the beginning that maybe it's because he got shot, but that's not, we know that not he lived case. past that. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm curious if he is, I'm curious if either a his mind left his body whenever he did die and is now stuck in this place or if he is still alive and he is in this place, you know, I, mm-hmm. it, it's confusing, but he also looks very gaunt. Yes. Um, he looks a little kind of scary in this with his, the hoodies pulled over and it's like a lot of shadows, but he, mm-hmm. he looks like he is not doing so hot. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it could be because he has escaped here following some kind of near death experience, which <laughs> has left everyone in the real world thinking that he's dead. But There's, I think, some key terminology that gets dispensed in the flashback within a flashback when we're learning about Scott's childhood with his older brother, Paul, and their relationship with their father, who in this episode is seen encouraging Scott to jump off of a second story window (sighs) or else he will cut and physically maim the older brother, Paul. But after Scott eventually does that, and then the father sits them down, he 
says that Paul is bad and that Scott is gone. And the suggestion is that what is gone can stay gone. So I wonder if what has happened is that Scott has indeed stayed gone as an adult. Yeah, I, you know, this, this flashback within a flashback of the, his childhood is, I found it very, very traumatizing. I I mean, obviously very traumatizing, but I wasn't quite sure what the intent of it is because on one hand, there's like a metaphor. I I feel like this, this story is a metaphor for kind of repressed trauma because either Mm -hmm. we have, we have Scott that has had a very traumatic childhood where his father was either, uh, you know, out of his mind and, and abusing him or, or the other side of things that he knows what he is doing and he is trying to save his kids. Like mm-hmm. that is a, a very dicey dichotomy, especially when you look Ooh, at boy. the idea of abusive parents yeah. and this idea of this imaginary world that kids could escape to, to mm-hmm. like not have to deal with real life trauma. So that this is a balancing act and I'm, yeah. I'm unsure <laughs> which way it's going to fall. Oh, sure. Because I'm imagining that people who are watching this who have experienced abuse and trauma in their own childhoods or in their own lives, oh boy, I I fear for the kind of reaction or even triggering that they may experience. Because I do think that the show, it, it's a little bit sensational. I don't think it's pushing it as far as, as it could, but it's definitely treading the line with how it's using this abuse. And I do think that there's a danger in trying to excuse Scott and Paul's father's behavior because he is in touch with some kind of magical other world. I think it goes down a lot easier when you say, oh, children use this as a coping mechanism. Amanda is using this as a coping mechanism for dealing with trauma. But if the father is abusing his children because of this, that has some potentially icky connotations. It does. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of the movie Frailty. Right. Yes, exactly. With, except in that case, it was a father that had like the, the religious angle of like, you mm-hmm. know, there's demons and whatnot, but it still had a very similar feel to it where they even right. this, and I don't even know if we're given this man's name. He just, everyone, Scott calls him dad and daddy. So I don't right. know if we've gotten his name, but like, he keeps talking about, you know, well, what's, you know, what a demon infestation is and mm-hmm. you know why we're doing this room. I'm, I'm getting out the bad and like, he's, kind of training the kids to be like, you had to let out the bad. We understand it. And it's, it's using very triggering dialogue. Like this dialogue Mm -hmm. in between them is kind of out of the abuser's handbook of like, you you know, why did you make me do this to you? You know why I had to do this. I don't want to do this. He says Mm -hmm. at one point, but you're kind of, but it's making me. And so I'm a little worried to see how this story is going to unfold. If I'm being perfectly honest. (laughs) Yeah. Because we do see that at least Scott, I mean, we know for a fact that Paul is dead. We don't know how he, died or when he died hazarding a guess that that scott killed him oh gosh okay hazarding a guess have no idea but just the the trauma behind this it just it feels like that is going to be the natural progression either that or the father killed him like right some kind of very traumatic thing happened yes because scott does not want to talk about his brother beyond this but you know i'm thinking back to what we saw i think it was in episode two where scott punches the laundromat window and Mm -hmm. then he cuts himself and he says that he's doing it as a blood bull. And we learned Mm -hmm. in this episode that blood bulling is equivalent to letting the bad out. And 
again, you know, if we're thinking about the way that cutting gets treated uh, and its associations with mental illness, like this is also problematic, right? The idea that when I, when I cut myself, I let bad things out and therefore I should be allowed to do it. Oh oh boy. Okay. So we're also seeing that with Amanda as well. In the very first episode, she's breaking that, that cup and she's mm -hmm. grinding it in her, in her flesh. And in this one, she's carving help me Lisi in her arm. So there's definitely, some kind of trauma connection here to that yes. idea of cutting that could be rather triggering. Uh, I mean, I, I do think this this series is probably going to have a big old content warning attached to it, to be perfectly honest. Right. Yes. I, and I think we'll inevitably see some think pieces uh, when this is all said and done as well. But I, like you, I have some concerns and I hope that they can manage to stick the landing with wherever they're going with this. But also kind of continuing on with this idea of this like trauma that is kind of repressed in some way, either A, through trying to actively forget about it or B, just like not talk about it. The one moment that I thought was rather bold, I I guess. I'm not exactly sure what word choice I I would put in here, but it's the moment under the yum-yum tree, we have Lisi kind of like saying, you know, you can talk about this just once and you don't have to bring it up again, but you need to tell me. And then after he shows her, the water comes up, she freaks out. Mm -hmm. We don't quite see exactly what happened, but then we see the opposite side where she kind of literally tells him the stuff about your brother and where we went, that never happened because I can't deal with it. Yeah, And that is a bold narrative choice because you are making Lisi basically say, I know you had trauma. Mm -hmm. I can't deal with your trauma. Yeah. I did glom onto that line as well because it, it's so hurtful and Mm. it's not what I expected from Lisi because she does seem, I mean, and maybe this isn't fair to who the character is or what we know of her, but I guess I thought that she was a bit more empathetic and yet, even as I say it, I'm thinking back to her relationship with her sisters. It is fraught with tension. She's not always the most sympathetic person. So it's interesting, right? Like she's more complicated than I initially thought going into this. But yeah, I I guess it does actually track with her because even in this episode, we see that she is more determined to play Scott's game and track Mm -hmm. the pool go on the bull hunt as opposed to showing up at the hospital on time and helping Darla to care for their ill sister. Like, Hey, Lizzie, did you have to track down that box and look at these photos and go down memory lane right now? No, you did not. But you decided it was more important. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was watching the first two episodes, I was like, man, Darla's kind of a jerk. Right? Yeah. And And now you're like, oh, maybe we maybe we're more on Darla's side than we realize. And, you know, it's funny because she does she does lash out. Even she lashed out in this in this particular episode where she yells at her, you know, well, you've been fucking his favorite writer half your life. Like she throws that out there and it's like, and then just hangs up. (laughs) Right. You're reducing her relationship to her husband the same way that, that Jim Dooley, the bad guy is, has reduced her relationship and the way that dash meal, the the professor has reduced her relationship. So there Mm -hmm. is that side of it. But on the other side of things, we don't see Lisi as necessarily the most, as you said, sympathetic or empathetic character. Yeah. Yeah. She's very focused on 
on herself in this, in particularly in this episode, either a not wanting to deal with someone else's trauma, which I mean, I get it. If I was magically whisked away to some (laughs) weird fantasy world, I probably would be like, I don't know if I, my brain can handle this. I get that. But but that combined with this, like she's going to Amanda's house to get her Oreos and she happens to find the cedar box. And instead of taking those Oreos and doing the kind of familial thing that she should be doing her obligation, She's like, ooh, box, I must dig into my past. Mm -hmm. It's complex. I think she's complex in that regard. It is. Yeah, I I actually thought for a moment, based on what we saw in the flashback, that she had repressed it so much that she had actually forgotten. But then in her conversations with Darla later, it is actually clear that she does remember what happened and she just doesn't know entirely whether or not to believe it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I did really appreciate that conversation that she has with Darla and particularly the complexity because, you know, yeah, you, you rightfully pointed out that Darla is very mean spirited when she hurls that, well, you're fucking his favorite writer. But then she does come clean and say, Oh, well, yeah, I did read Scott's books. Mm -hmm. Like I read them. I like the underhanded or the backhanded compliment where she says they were okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I, I love that moment. And I love that it it feels like a real sister sibling relationship where she comes to the door and she's like, I'm sorry, I'm stressed and I'm scared. Mm -hmm. I took it out on you. Like there, and there's that implicit understanding, like, okay, well I'm making dinner. We're going to have hamburger helper. Like, you know, there's that kind of, okay, you know, we're family. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels very real at that, at that point. Yes. So yeah, I, it, it's complex. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And I, I love that aspect of it because it would be really easy to just paint these characters in broad strokes and say, yep, this one's sister's a bitch and this one's catatonic and dedicate all of our time and attention on Lizzie, which we, we still are. You know, this is very, very much the Julianne Moore show. And yet, I think that there is attention to detail that's happening with some of these supporting characters to the extent that, you know, last week when we said, well, what do you think is going to happen in the next episode? I said, oh, well, I hope we get more of the sisters. And it wasn't as much as I wanted, but no. what we did get was still very satisfying. It was illuminating, I, I think, in particular. And I, I, I do think that we're starting starting to get a little bit more insight into Amanda in, in, in her, like, being trapped in this other world. Mm-hmm. I did like this brief moment that, again, the ambig- ambiguity is not really spelled out, where she there's a scene of her kind of submerging herself in the water. Yes. And then there's the next scene where she is, like, pulling at the bandages on her skin and realizes that, her skin has been healed. And Mm -hmm. so it's like a moment that's not really called out. It's more of a subtle sequence that I think that if you weren't really paying attention, you might not even realize what she's doing, but there is that kind of inference there that there's something wonderful happening here, but at the same time, terrifying. And she is starting to understand how kind of trapped she is. Right. And I, I also love that moment where Darla arrives and she begins rubbing her and mm. she realizes that something has changed in her. And, yeah. you know, the, the liminal kind of fluid lines that are separating this fantasy world and our quote unquote real world. I love that people can kind of slip through them or you Mm -hmm. can, you can feel it even if you aren't able to quote unquote go there. I did love the moment. I I actually took a note on that too, because she's like, you feel different. And then she says, where are you going, honey? Like Mm. there is a sense of like, 
I w- if I only knew where you were going, I could help you. And you can really see beyond the the bullshit and beyond her yelling about her sister fucking this writer. Mm-hmm. There is this this care in her that I think makes her a little bit more interesting than just the, as you said, more of the like the shrill kind of sister, mean spirited sister to play off of the the good ones. Right. Yeah. So we should probably address the character that we've been talking around but not addressing so i don't know if we get more insight into jim dooley this week he's still kind of lurking on the periphery he's set up an elaborate ruse to lure the police away from lizzie's (laughs) house with a timed explosive that will light up a neighbor's farm but i think you you have some insights about what the series is saying about like toxic fan culture yeah i don't think as as you said i don't think we learn more about him i but i do think it kind of deepens the kind of character that he is portraying in this and that is that sort of idea of a very toxic fandom and mm-hmm. the the very toxic relationship that some fans can have with their writer because so we get this like moment where he pies the the face of some right. writer slash scholar that is basically equating uh, Scott Landon's fans to a cult. He has a book about the cult of Scott Landon, mm-hmm. and which P.S. you can't complain about fans and then write a fucking <laughs> book about those fans. Like I'm sorry, sir, you are profiting off of these quote unquote people that you disparage. So hypocrite, right there. <laughs> I love that Jim really proves that character's point though. Cause he comes running up and oh, smashes yeah. a pie in his face, which is as we're told the pie of death that's from Scott's novel. So there's like, you can, this character is representing exactly what this mm-hmm. man is, is railing against. And it's, it's interesting. Cause I, I am curious about the connection and whether Stephen King is, is interested in pursuing this connection between how much culpability does the author have mm-hmm. in these relationships I mean, that might not be necessarily fair to say because there there is a line of dialogue where Jim is, is filming after what happened. And he says, I never read much till Scott's books. He taught me to read. He taught me to think. He taught me to feel. And so you have this 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 character, this man who has learned how to reason, how to think, how to feel mm-hmm. based on reading this author's books. Right. And there is a power there. I feel like if that is your only throughput is one particular person, then that is going to create this kind of cult of personality and it's going to create potentially a dangerous subset of people. And I'm curious if, if King is, is exploring this or if this is just a, a caricature. Yeah, it, it is very interesting because you're absolutely right that Dooley is proving this thesis that this man has and it would be impossible to overestimate the influence that a single writer would have if that person taught you how to think and to read and to feel like if you believe so strongly in that culpability, what wouldn't you do for Mm -hmm. that person? And if you're thinking about what Julie is doing right now to get more, to Mm -hmm. feel like there is more out there, it is being withheld from me. Like the slavish devotion that he feels to Scott is believable in those extremes. But there's also something else that that we get told because Lizzie sees this when the officer who's protecting her gives her a tablet and she watches these videos and she hands the tablet back and she says, 
Scott, I, I don't have the line exactly, but it's something along the lines of Scott had a lot of fans mm-hmm. like this and he felt sympathy or he, you know, he, he liked them. He worked, he tried to work with them. So called them deep space cowboys. Right. Is the line that she throws out there. Oh my God. Such a kingism. Really, is. But I, I guess what I took away from that is, I mean, we've been presented with other fans who are on par with Dooley. You know, the person who shot Scott in the first episode mm-hmm. were to think of them as a, a kind, right? And it makes me wonder if, I think within this world, the suggestion is that the type of writing that Scott is doing lends itself to these kinds of fans. Like what he's writing is appealing to these kinds of people who are attracted to the fantastical, to these other worlds. You know, we speculated about that last week, but I do think that there's something more to be taken from that. If you pull it out of the show and into King's own relationship with his fans Mm -hmm. and who are the kinds of people who read King's books and what kind of relationship does he have with them? So there is that level of meta textualness, but I don't, like, I'm interested to see how far King will take it. Is he actually making a condemnation of his own fans with this? Yeah, I I mean, that's an excellent question. Uh, and, you know, it's it's hard. To, it's hard to really I mean, it's hard to quantify that, though, too, right? Because mm-hmm. especially when you're considering if, if Scott Landon is a stand in for King in terms of his popularity. I mean, everyone reads King. I mean, right. he he's not a, a he hasn't been a top selling number one bestseller f- for 40 however many years by not having millions of people read his work Mm -hmm. and so there there is that idea of like yes if you have that many fans i mean the percentage of people are corrupt and a percentage of those fans will take that to an to an nth degree so i'm i'm curious i i just i don't know if he's using it as a a crutch or an example, or if there's going to be some more to this, because we do yeah. get, we, we mentioned last week that Dooley feels like an MRA immense rights activist. And he right. really kind of <laughs> leans oh, into that boy. part of this episode where he says, no wife stay single. And so there is that Ooh. kind of condemnation where he thinks that Lisi has taken his favorite writer from him. Mm-hmm. And that this idea that he married her and that she is purposefully keeping away these books when mm-hmm. it's actually revealed where she like is talking with, I believe she's talking with Darlin. She's like, he has all these manuscripts. I don't know. There could be a completed novel in there. She doesn't know. She doesn't but know. He has like put on her all of the ills that he sees in life and all of the negativity of why Scott was pulled from him. It's at such a young age, as he says. Yeah. And if you think of the genesis of the story and King's relationship to his own wife, this all makes a lot of sense. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like part of me, hopes that King doesn't just leave it there and that he does push this further. Cause I do think that there's something really fascinating to explore there. I don't know if that's just me wanting King to grapple with his own fandom and his own celebrity. Like maybe this isn't the right property and that's not what he has any interest in doing, but it feels like that door is partially open. And I just really want to know if he's going to step through. <laughs> He's going to fully embrace the Booyah Moon or if he's just going to skirt around it and ignore it like Lisi tried to do. Maybe, but with, with, you know, and I think maybe this is a a round of good place to leave it, but I do have one final thing that I just have to like get off my chest with this. And it does involve doors. If you knew that you were being targeted by somebody, even if the police said, uh, he's probably gone, (laughs) would you not lock the fucking doors, Harry? (laughs) 
because Dooley just strolls in and starts looking around and Darla just strolls into her house and sits her ass down with a glass of wine. Like, Lizzie, what the fuck are you doing? Certainly does. I, you know, I was like, well, first of all, we get that kind of, I mean, it's, it's been done before and it's almost a trope at this point moment where she walks uh, where Darla walks in the house, the camera pans are at the table Mm -hmm. and then it pans back and boom, there he is in his yellow coat glory, just standing there and staring. But you're absolutely right. First of all, you've had a cop parked outside Mm -hmm. and he's only literally been gone for what, five or 10 minutes by this point. So it's not as if like it's days later and you're like, Oh, the threat has passed. You literally Mm -hmm. had a cop outside and yet you don't lock your husband's, door to his writing retreat where right. the manuscripts are that he has said that he wants mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> absolutely correct yeah it's uh it's a little baffling it's a little frustrating because it does feel kind of okay well we need to do this in order to advance the story because of course this is our cliffhanger for this episode is the idea that Lisi has just walked into the space where Jim Dooley is observing and possibly going to attack her and, and peeing and playing with the yo-yo and not uh, flushing when he pees in the toilet. Like, no, come on. Of course he wouldn't. That's, <laughs> that's entirely keeping with the character, the peeing and the fair. yo-yo. I thought, Oh, well, this is a hundred percent apt. Yeah. We also do get a little bit of foreshadowing. I'm going to call it now where there's a comment. Amanda had a 22. Mm, oh yeah. Where is that? Chekhov's 22 right there. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's forecast for next week. Then episode four, what do you think is going to happen? Boy, I thought last I thought this week we were going to have some kind of confrontation between the two and because it seemed like it was set up for that. Mm-hmm. Here we have another episode where it's set up for an actual confrontation because they're literally in the same place. Do I think we're going to have a confrontation? I kind of hope so, because I would like to see something kind of move the plot into the, the second half of the the story because we're coming up on episode four. We're coming up on the midpoint mm-hmm. of the of the series. I kind of want to see something escalate because right. i don't think that burning a barn is the escalation i kind of had in mind between the no, conflict, to be perfectly no. honest so i do think you're on to something and i say this as someone who has cheated and looked at the title for the next episode oh. which is jim dandy so uh, i think potentially we're either going to have a situation where jim dooley will maybe be captured in the act of trespassing or attacking lisi or my hope is actually that we will get some kind of backstory. So explore mm. that relationship that he has with Scotland. It's I, Cause as much as I'm enjoying being almost trapped inside Lizzie's head, I do think it would be fascinating to see just how do other people engage with Scotland and, and this world that he has created. Like, so getting a bit more of the backstory of that. So it's not just about her and her idealized version of what her relationship was like with her husband in that regard there was a moment in the very beginning of this episode where i was like this can go one of two ways either one this is just another character trait of jim dooley that that dane dehan is kind of influenced on his character or b there's something else here that's going to be paid off later but there is a moment at the very beginning where he's introduced and he is staring at the cutout of scott landon and right. he is just as still as that cutout mm-hmm. and i'm wondering can he somehow tap into this Booyah Moon place as well? Is he somehow like not cognizant in that body for that brief moment? Mm. Sort of like the way that Amanda is, the way that other people get trapped in there. 
because it's a moment where he is just as still as that cutout. And so I'm curious to see if we do get, as you suggest, we might get kind of like a, a background into him. If we can see that kind of connection, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, we will have to wait and we'll tune in next week for Jim Dandy episode four. And in the interim, Terry, if people want to, uh, jump on your idea and they want to talk about it with you, where can they reach you? You can reach me on Twitter at Gaily Dreadful. What about you, Joe? I can also be found on Twitter at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And uh, I guess that will wrap up another episode of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And of course, if you, uh, you know, want to rate, review and subscribe the show, we are part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. So be sure to, you know, give all the love to the show and all the rest of the shows on the network because, you know, every little thing helps. Heck yeah. Yeah. And until then, we will see you in the burning fire. (laughs) Pleasant dreams.